Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. In the past decade, the incidence of self-harm, eating disorders, and other serious mental health crises among teens, particularly girls, spiked across North America, alarmingly so in many cases. Journalist and author Donna Jackson Nakazawa translates complicated science at the intersection of immunology, neuroscience, and human emotion for non-experts. Her newest book does that with the emerging science on adolescence in the storm of modern life. It's called Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. And Donna Jackson Nakazawa joins us now from Stevenson, Maryland, and it's so good to have you back on our program. Donna, how are you doing these days? Pleasure to be here. And like all of us, after the past two and a half years, we're happy to be here, right? Amen to that. Let me read this excerpt from your book just to set up our conversation. And Sheldon, if you would, let's bring up this graphic. Rates of depression in girls have now reached epidemic proportions. One out of four adolescent girls report suffering from symptoms of major depression compared with fewer than one in 10 boys. Girls and young women are twice as likely as boys and young men to suffer from anxiety. These statistics cannot be explained by higher rates of awareness or diagnosis. They are real and they are scary to every parent of every daughter and to anyone who cares about young women. Uh, You also later write that our modern adolescent female crisis in well-being is not just a psychological phenomenon, it is a biological one. Uh, You know, you got a daughter, I got a daughter, they're around the same age, so you can imagine, uh, I get your interest in this subject firsthand, but let's start with the last thing there. How is this also, in your judgment, a biological problem? Well, it's interesting, and to set the stage for that, I want to point out to people as somebody who's researched the intersection of stress and psychology across health and development, that it's only very recently that researchers even began to look at how stress in the environment affects the developing female brain. Prior to that, if you can believe it, like so many other areas of medicine, Steve, We were looking exclusively at a male research model. And guess what? It turns out that when you look at the intersection of stress across health and development in well-being for life, female biology actually plays a role in how stress is processed by the brain and how it affects development. So those of us who are reporters are not surprised by this. But I think that that's a really important place to start in our understanding that now that we are looking at female biology in the face of stress and how it affects the immune system and brain development, we're starting to see that it's giving us ways to connect the dots between the environment we live in, the stressors girls face, and this growing gap between the mental health of girls and boys. Having said that, did you have some initial concern about probing the biological angle of this story? Well, absolutely, because the fear is that if you start to talk about biological sex differences in any way, 
um, even if it's elucidating and helping um, us to understand how we can intervene and help girls in this time, it'll be misused, right? The way that so many aspects of female biology have been misused against women to, you know, it used to be that a while ago, it was considered to be, you know, hysteria that happened around a woman's period. And we've misused our understanding of biology in so many ways. And I certainly don't want to say anything that allows people to do that, because it turns out that in the absence of unmitigated, unrelenting stress, the female adolescent brain is a superpower. All of the things we're going to talk about today are just when those stressors become highly overwhelming. Well, uh, I mean, it has always been a thing, teenage angst, right? It has always been a thing. But what are girls facing today uh, that makes it particularly different from past teenage angst? Yeah, right. So, of course, all kids are struggling today. As we see these growing rates of anxiety and depression in girls, boys are facing other things, right? Boys are struggling too. We see more prevalence of attention disorders and behavioral disorders in boys. But all of our kids are facing this this world that's coming in really hot and fast. The world is heating up environmentally, socially, emotionally. Gosh, Steve, 60% of kids in a recent Pew study said they fear that their school, here in the United States at least, will be the next site of a school shooting. And we've also kind of erased those middle childhood years between 7 and 13, the in-between years, which used to be about getting to know what you love and who your friends are and how to respond to the world around you. We've replaced that with this period of earlier and earlier competition academically and socially and emotionally. So that has kind of erased those middle years of childhood at the same time that the world is coming in so hot and so fast. And guess what? The brain during these middle childhood years, these in-between years, it has not wired and fired up yet to handle this kind of outer competition and evaluation that's coming in at earlier and earlier ages. And that's true for all kids, right? But as I'm sure we'll talk about for girls, the influx and the prevalence of social media in their lives is an added layer of, let's just say, toxicity. Well, you've anticipated exactly where I wanted to go next, which is it seems that as soon as girls turn, I don't know what now, 10, 11, 12, the competition to get that cell phone, that fantastic new iPhone, is there. And, and I'm happy to blame social media for just about every ill in the world because it never fails to disappoint in being responsible for so many of them. Is it fair to do that, though? I think that we want to put it in the context of all the other stressors that young people are facing. But when we begin to look at social media as a stressor, particularly in girls' lives, here's what we see. We see that girls are much more likely to spend more time on social media. We see that girls are rewarded for sexualizing themselves at increasingly early ages on social media. There's very, very little distinction between being a girl and being a woman on social media. Mm. And we also see that girls are much more likely to receive shaming, critiquing, um, being put down, especially by men. And that 
external evaluation about the face, the hair, the body, how they appear, what they say is much harder and faster on social media against females and girls when they receive this at this early age that you talked about, like we know that you aren't supposed to be on Instagram until 13, but Meta's own internal reports show that many girls are on by the age of eight, right? As you mentioned. Hmm. So the brain is not wired and fired up to put this exterior shaming and evaluation and critiquing and this early sexualization and this performative quality in any kind of context at that stage of development. Let me follow up on that from this standpoint. And I appreciate that you said in your book that that you have a daughter, but it's her story to tell and you don't want to go into too much detail there. And I kind of feel the same way with, with, with my daughter. I certainly remember a lot of this stuff, but I don't feel it's my place to tell. Having said that, I think it's fair to say that in my kids' experience, the girls were worse on social media than the boys. You got any empirical evidence that suggests that's the case across the board? Well, what we see is actually both. We see that girls receive more critiquing and evaluative shaming from other girls and more shaming and evaluation for body, face, appearance, sexuality, and not living up to some mythical female idea from males. So girls get it from both directions. Hmm. Okay, let's go back to biology here. What is happening at puberty that can make girls uh, more particularly susceptible to what we've been talking about here than boys? Well, puberty is this wonderful golden time in development, right? It's when these amazing master regulatory hormones come in. And we think about those hormones, right, as things that we associate with the thrum of sexual excitement or mood changes. But really, estrogen, when it comes in, is this beautiful master regulator for the body and brain. It is helping those neurons in the brain to sing and fire together and helping the brain to wire up for resiliency in so many ways. But estrogen is also across evolutionary time, what we call an immune amplifier. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it acts as an amplification system for the immune system in healthy and protective ways in females. It is the reason why women can do so much in smaller bodies and with smaller organs and still make room for a uterus, right? It's the reason why we, when we get vaccines, we have a more robust immune response. Unfortunately, in the face of too much stress, social, emotional, physical stress, it flips to what we call an evolutionary disadvantage. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it's the reason why women are more likely to develop autoimmune disease after puberty at three, four times the rate of men. It's the reason why women have more long COVID. So estrogen is this amplifier of our stress response, of our immune response. Yay, that's really good. It helps protect us and protect our ability to carry another life. But it is this disadvantage when the stressors are coming in, as we said earlier, too quickly, too many, too fast. And what about uh, early childhood trauma? Can puberty do something to make the consequences of that worse? Absolutely. So across childhood, the brain's most important question 
is, you know, am I safe in this world or am I not safe? Am I going to be safe as I go up and become a grown-up? One day I have to be out there on my own. If the answer to that question is not so safe because intermittently you're not so safe, then the brain begins to wire and fire up based on that intel, right? Like a computer chess game that's that's taking into account every single move on that chessboard. The brain will begin to fire and wire up to be prepared for the next bad thing happening. And we don't wanna see that because when we see that, here's what it looks like in the brain. It looks like the over pruning of areas of the brain that we wanna see fire up for resiliency in the, in the uh, prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the hippocampus. And it looks like on brain scans, brain patterns, we begin to see and associate with depression and anxiety. Hmm. It it also seems, and you talk about this obviously in the book, that uh, young girls are hitting puberty at an earlier age in life. What's the impact of that? Well, gosh, Steve, in the 1800s, puberty was at 16, in, in 1900 at 15. Today it's happening at 11. And here's where we begin to see that intersection. So, um, Visually, we used to have adolescents would come in right before puberty. We wanted to see that, but now we're seeing puberty come in before adolescence. And what I mean by that is that adolescence, we talked about before that that period of the in-between years comes in between childhood and late adolescence. And the brain has a lot of experience in the world, how to handle things, how to respond to stressors. Is this a huge deal? Is it an emergency? Or is this something that, you know, tomorrow will be okay again? And when puberty comes in and it amplifies that stress response in that big kind of way, that's a real problem because again, the brain isn't wired and fired up to handle distress in that way, to even know, is this serious or not serious? To even know how to articulate what you're feeling internally, which has worked for all of us across the lifespan, or to even know how to ask for help to recognize how I'm feeling is not okay. I need to ask mom and dad. What is, what, what is this that's happening to me? I need some help here. Hmm. Well, now that we've completely terrified anybody who has a young girl who is on the verge of all of this, uh, we know there are parents who are looking for advice to understand how to best handle uh, the years to come in some cases or if they're in the midst of it right now. So let's do that. Where should parents even begin as it relates to handling these issues? Well, the first thing to remember is we're all doing our absolute best as parents. You're a parent, I'm a parent, I have two kids. We aren't gonna do it perfectly and that's okay. Just start where you are. So many times I have parents say to me, my daughter's already struggling, you know, I messed this up or I'm not doing it right. And the truth is that when we begin to put in the 15 antidotes that all the experts that I ran around and called agreed upon can really make a shift in girls health and neurobiology and are neurobiologically protective. When we begin to put those in place, wherever we are, wherever we begin, it makes a profound shift in our relationship with our daughters and in their health and well-being and in their relationship with themselves and with this world. Yeah, let's hit on some of those 15 antidotes that you just referenced, because you do spend half the book talking about that. And I guess, um, well, let's start here. Parents 
you say, need to consider their own background, their own stress levels, their own past trauma as it relates to trying to deal with their daughters. Why is that important? Absolutely. Well, we know that when we have a history of a lot of stress and trauma, and who among us doesn't at this point, um, and when we have a history of a lot of adversity and trauma over time, just as we talked about how stress and adversity can begin to affect health and development in young people, it is also true for us when we were growing up and when we were young that a lot of adversity in childhood or chronic unpredictable stressors shifts our ability to regulate our own stress response. What do I mean by that? A really difficult moment comes up, maybe in family life, maybe you're standing in the kitchen, maybe you're in the living room, maybe you're driving your child in the car and they tell you something or don't tell you something and your stress response is going up because you know something is going on, you're worried. Well, when we've had an adver- a history of adversity, Guess what happens when we face another potentially big stressor? We go into fight, flight, freeze, but we also lose our ability to think clearly and be the kind of parent we want to be in that moment. Our brain and our higher level thinking, we cannot access it in that moment. It just goes right off, right out of our minds. So what we want to do is notice and get really discreet about noticing how we feel and how we respond in those moments of connection where our child needs us to be the very best parent that we can be. And if we find that we're caught up in kind of managing our own anxiety and distress and kind of bringing ourselves back to level playing field and grounding ourselves and that we can't really be there for our child, in a way that makes them feel safe and seen and known and valued, what we call technically parent-child attunement, Hmm. then the work really begins with us because that is what our children need in that moment, especially in this world that we're living in. They need to know that when they come to us, we see them, we are not gonna be so caught up in fixing or being the detective or managing our own distress that they can actually find that they are soothed for what they're going through in that moment. And that's where the work really begins for many of us as parents. And I raise my hand here as the very first among them. (laughs) Well, doesn't that just speak to being a good listener? I mean, at the end of the day, they just want to be heard, yes? They just want to be heard, but they also want to know that they aren't just being heard. They're being heard in a way that we are stepping out of it with our needs and questions and evaluations. And that is really harder to do than it sounds. When I talk to parents, that is often one of the hardest things that they find in their parenting journey to be that kind of parent who can support a child, particularly one who's struggling. Remember that all that we've talked about here tells us that it takes a while for a a young person to even begin to know what they're feeling, to articulate what they're feeling. And as parents, we've spent our lifetimes and reasonably so being the fixer, right? Mm. Your kid falls down, you got to fix it, put a Band-Aid on it, get the Bactine. We are motivated to help our children from the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed. But in many ways, we have to take ourselves on another journey. And in the book, oh my gosh, I think I have over a hundred scripts. Because when your brain flies offline, 
it can actually help you to rewire and refire your own brain as a parent by having scripts at hand. I've had parents tell me they're pasting them on the inside of their kitchen cabinets, you know, or <laughs> under the visor of the car, because it sounds really easy to do. But if you have ever really been worried about your child, as I have really been worried about my child, you will find in that moment that your best words are hard to find. Do you have to be careful about running the risk of being overprotective and therefore denying your child the opportunity to develop skills of resiliency, which they will surely need throughout the course of their lives. 100%, because we know that during that period of development, we want to see the brain wire up, as you said, for resiliency. And it does that by meeting a little wobble in the world, right? We don't wanna solve all our children's problems. We have to give them the time in the space and have conversations with them so that we can discern, is this a child-sized problem or is it an adult-sized problem that needs adult help? And that is a really important thing because we don't want to be like driving to school with a forgotten paper. We want to help kids realize they can deal with a lot of things on their own, right? We want their brain to wire and fire up for that sense of competence and a self-assuredness that, hey, you know, if I make a mistake, I've made them before. I know what to do in this situation. It doesn't mean they aren't coming to you for advice, but you aren't taking over. Hmm. Donna, let's finish up on this. And again, I want to respect your privacy with your daughter in asking this question, but I wonder whether you have uh, taken to heart and implemented yourself these antidotes that you've written about and whether they've always worked? I would say that my short answer before I give a longer answer is that if only, if only, if only, Steve, if only this science and if only I had done this reporting 10 years ago, I would feel, I, I, I wish, I wish, <laughs> and I say in the book, I wish I had reported this before my daughter hit these really important years. And yet I will add to that in my longer answer that honestly, it has made such a difference. It's made such a difference for how I am in the room with my daughter, even when she's facing really, really hard things. And I'll throw in one statistic here. One of the studies I report on in the book shows that the greatest, most significant uh, factor of flourishing across these difficult years is one thing. Can this child come and talk to you about anything, no matter how difficult? Hmm. And you know what? The work, the 15 antidotes in this book, they're about that, but they're also about knowing sometimes that maybe you aren't enough and you have to bring in the wider world. Wonderful. Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Her latest is Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. We're always so grateful for your visits to our program, Donna. Until next time. Such a pleasure. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.